The topic of cannabis is a big one. Issues of legalization, medicalization, and complex research are important parts of this discussion. How does this look behind the scenes? For this episode of Through the Trees, I sit down with Dr. Christian Hopfer, a psychiatrist and premier researcher for the University of Colorado. We talk about twin-based research, harm versus beneficial evidence with marijuana, and public health needs for greater guidance to the population. Addiction treatment healthcare is vast territory, much of it having yet to be fully charted. It also is a field with some of the most passionate and interesting of clinicians. Each week, we walk the addiction treatment trails, learning from experts of all backgrounds and specialties. My name is Pat Failing, and I'm an addiction psychiatrist for Cedar in the University of Colorado. You're listening to Through the Trees, the Cedar Addiction Treatment Podcast. Well, this is Dr. Pat Failing, and we're here as part of our addiction podcast at Cedar Through the Trees. I'm very happy today to sit down with Dr. Christian Hopfer. Uh, Dr. Hopfer is a professor of psychiatry for the University of Colorado School of Medicine. He's also a staff clinician here at Cedar. Uh, Dr. Hopfer has a long history of NIDA-funded research, so this is pretty specialized uh, protocols and uh, studies looking at the disease of addiction on a population level and a pretty large scale. And today we're going to sit down and talk more in depth about one of the hottest topics in the country, which is cannabis and marijuana and the way it is affecting people, what we know about it on a biological level, and also a lot of the cutting edge research in terms of what we've been seeing. So uh, Dr. Hopfer, thank you for sitting down with me. Thanks, Patrick. Glad to be here. Give us a little bit of a background. Tell, tell us what you do in terms of research. Well, what i am been focused on lately is understanding the impact of legalizing marijuana on basically mental health and addiction outcomes. We're funded to do a study of about 5,000 twins. Half of the twins are in Colorado and the other half are in Minnesota. We have about 15 years of information about their substance use patterns before legalization. Now we're going to get another uh, wave of data after legalization in Colorado, but it still is going to be illegal in Minnesota. So we're going to look at are the rates of marijuana use higher in Colorado, which we kind of expect. How is that affecting other drug use? Is, you know, alcohol use going up or down? Is it affecting mental health conditions? Because we know people's substance use before legalization, we can look before and after, but we can also look across state. And then we can also compare twin pairs where one is using and one is not to try to get an understanding of questions like substitution 
So if people use more marijuana, do they then use less of, for example, alcohol? That's like a basic question that's been kicked around a lot. Sure, like a, a trading one drug for, for another. another. Yeah, that's a common idea out there. Okay. Can you say a little bit about the nature of the twin study? What is a, what's a twin study? Twins are just studies of identical and fraternal twins, and they've, they've been studied a lot. Uh, for mainly in the past, we used to study them to understand genetic influences on behavior. But it turns out they're a really good population-based group to study also because they, they tend to participate in research at really high rates. Oh, interesting. <laughs> and, uh, you know, with marijuana research, I'm, I've also, people have such strong opinions about it. I've always been worried that if you just got volunteers, they would come into the study with a lot of, you know, pro or against opinions. But the, the twins are in the study because they're twins, and a lot of twins feel are, are happy to participate in research. And uh, the twins we've been following, some of them have been followed since birth. So we have information about their behavior from childhood until, until their 30s. And uh, we have a pretty good sense of how they've been doing and what how their employment is and what kind of substances they have or they haven't used. So And, and we know that they're representative of the general population. They have a, about an IQ that's about average and a normal distribution of income. So... It's a nice sample because it, it's a good representation of the overall general population. So now, these are identical twins or fraternal? They're both identical and fraternal twins. They were originally gotten through um, birth records, and uh, they've just been participating in our studies for, well, two decades, basically. And uh, of all different kinds of things? Are they involved in all different health research? Uh, yeah, I mean, most of the work we've been focused on has been in the mental health or behavioral area, but there's also been studies on sleep and diet, so it's mainly been mental health and addiction focused, but there's been some work on um, medical aspects of it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's so. that's the main project, and I also am looking at marijuana use in youth with uh, inflammatory bowel disease, um, a range of marijuana-related projects. I know that uh, the discussion of marijuana in the past used to be uh, just, I guess, pot. I, I don't know, yeah. smoked Mar pot. Right, People right. Flower, the flower product. Flower marijuana. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and then also... Uh, Percentages of people getting addicted to it, yeah. rates of depression, right, different right. things. Now, everything, at least in Colorado, this seems like this has kicked into high gear, where we're talking about all the different ingredients in cannabis, all the yeah. all these different compounds and stuff. That, um, yeah, well, there's been um, there's been a real explosion in trying to understand um, the different products. What's in them in the past, there was an almost exclusive focus on THC, which is the main psychoactive ingredient, but there's other minor cannabinoids in marijuana. There's CBD, which is not psychoactive, but is thought to have anti-inflammatory and potential other beneficial health effects. 
So there's been more interest in sort of unpacking the um, really different components uh, of the marijuana plant. Now, when you say psychoactive, you mean it's the, the ingredient that gets people high, per se? THC is the main ingredient that people get high from, whereas CBD is not thought to have much of a effect on the brain, basically. Okay. And, um, but it still seems to be worthy of being studied. Yeah, it's, well, people are wondering whether the ratio of THC to CBD makes a difference in the effects of marijuana. So that's one area of interest. And there's a lot of interest in the uh, anti-inflammatory uh, potential effects of CBD. I mean, the cannabinoid receptors, they're not just in your brain, they're also in your immune cells, and there may be other unknown uh, cannabinoid receptors, and it's really, that whole system is involved in pain, and learning, and memory, and appetite, and immune functioning. So there's a lot of interest actually just on the basic uh, pharmacology of cannabinoids. It's an active area of research for pharmaceutical companies. There's a lot of money pouring into trying under, trying to understand how uh, you know those pathways are being affected and how these you know plant cannabinoids are affecting things. Sure. Well, that's very fascinating. I know that um, you know, people have talked about uh, CBD and some of these products connected to seizure prevention. Right, right. And I know, uh, was there a, a medication that was approved, an actual pharmaceutical, like a British pharmaceutical yeah, company? Yeah, there is a, um, there, you, there is a approved CBD product. I don't know if it has an FDA indication yet, but it's at least... Um, it's certainly available. Okay. It, I mean, so, I mean, you can get THC as an FDA-approved product as Marinol. So, I mean, there are... And Marinol's been around for decades. Yeah, right? yeah. For cancer. Well, not for cancer per se, for nausea associated with chemotherapy. Oh, okay. Okay. The um, So, very interesting. So, we have um, kind of the new frontier that's really starting to get explored on a deeper level, all these other things of the plant. Mm -hmm. um, and what are the medical implications yeah. of all of this? Right. The, um, so what was the timeline? This has all changed in the last, what, decade in terms of, I know we had medical marijuana, decriminalization of marijuana, and then now recreational marijuana. Well, and, what's happened is, well... Here's the issue. The federal regulations have actually not changed. However, what changed was that during the Obama administration around 2009, there was a memorandum that told federal prosecutors to basically deprioritize uh, enforcing marijuana laws as long as state laws were being um, obeyed. And that really opened the door to making uh, state laws take effect. And around that time, for example, in Colorado, 
there had been medical marijuana on the books for about 10 years, and there were maybe 5,000 people with medical marijuana cards. Well, that number shot from five to 150,000 within a year. Okay. And, really? uh, and that was 08 or, or 09. 09. 09. Okay. So, so, you know, once it became, once the feds allowed state law to take effect, then, well, first, this medicinal route was the only way to have legal access. And then starting in 2014, Colorado at least allowed just recreational use, including the sale through dispensaries of, of marijuana. So that really then allowed it to be available for anyone over 21 who wanted to purchase it. And again, it's all relied on the federal government essentially tolerating this because they have not changed their laws, which consider it a Schedule One substance with no approved uh, medicinal use. And uh, it's actually also made the research very difficult because it's been very hard to do kind of randomized controlled studies with it because uh, basically it's hard to get. Oh, interesting. So the so the research grant, this is how some of this, the legality and the research kind of interweave. You have not, you have grants from NIDA, which is the National Institute on Drug Abuse, and then, but they will, it's only just like clinical interviews kind of? Uh, just, well, what we do is more observational work where we just um, study people and look at their patterns of use and how it, you know, correlates with outcomes. But you can get research marijuana from NIDA. It's grown in a special farm in Missouri. And if you get... Actually, I was just at a conference here, and somebody just got approved here after three years of regulatory nightmares to get the NIDA's marijuana and give it to people in a randomized way and test how it's affecting their pain and compare it with opiates. But that, that the only legal marijuana you can get for federal research is through this very special process. And most people think it's marijuana. Like, most of the <laughs> patients think it's, you know, like... It's, really, not, it's, not, really, cal, it's not Colorado it's not, caliber. It's not like, it's not like uh, you know, hydroponically grown, high-quality marijuana. Mm, it's interesting. Like, it, it's really supposed to be kind of lousy weed. And the participants say, what is this stuff? <laughs> and one issue is that they have trouble with the THC content being as high as the stuff that's grown here now. Marijuana of, I don't know, what I what I kind of think of is like, um, I call it like Led Zeppelin marijuana. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a totally different product. Yeah, it was. Than... It was a lot lower in THC content. And uh, it's really, like, I mean, I went to a dispensary and they were showing me their various products. And they're all like... 26, 27, 30%, 20% THC. I mean, in the old days, it was like 3 to 5% THC. So they're clearly uh, have these flower products that are much higher in THC content. And that's nothing compared to the shatter or wax, which is like a 90% pure THC kind of product. So, 
So that's like a like a very. It's like just pure THC essentially. And how does that work? It's it gets so exceedingly dried. It they keep drying it and it's, drying it. It's, it and drying like it. a I don't know how they make it, but it's like a waxy type of substance, and people typically uh, burn it and aerosolize it, and then like dab it or something. But they're basically self-administering almost pure THC. So incredibly high potency THC. Yeah. Okay. And what, how about? Uh, what are some of the percent ranges for edible marijuana? Well, I think that that's another issue that's highly variable. Depend. I mean, I think you know they. I think they label their products in terms of the milligrams per whatever gram. I don't. I don't really know how they do it exactly. But an issue with the edibles has been that uh, people. First of all, they're not really clear on how much they're taking in terms of milligrams. B, when they eat it, it doesn't take effect right away and they think they're not getting an effect. So they take quite a bit more and then by the time they are getting um, getting it hit their system, it's often at super high levels and that's why they do think that there's been a sort of... They think that the ER visits related to cannabis intoxication have been disproportionately higher on the edible range. I mean, people mainly still use flour, but it does seem like the edibles have been causing more problems and people not understanding the dosing and things like that. Okay, so the the user uh, may not not exactly know what to expect. They don't know what to expect, and then if they're not getting what they think they should, they keep taking more, and then by the time it's... It hits them. They're getting very high doses potentially. And are are you uh, looking into ways to research this? Like the, um, is there a big difference in how, uh, let's say, uh, an eight percent marijuana user would be different than a thirty percent marijuana user would be different than a ninety percent user? Well, I am very interested, and I'm trying to get this going and we're doing some pilot work now to me a huge problem in all of the marijuana field is that it's very hard to estimate people's exposure and what I, what I mean by that is right now when we do research on alcohol we sort of say well this is a standard drink a standard drink is a glass of wine uh, you know a bottle of beer or a shot of whiskey how many drinks per day do you have? And you can measure it, and people are pretty good at reporting it. They tend to underreport it a little bit. But you can then kind of measure, well, they've had this many drinks or an average, and this is what it's, you know, this is how it affects these outcomes. And the same thing is true with cigarettes. You can ask people how many packs a day do you smoke or how many cigarettes per day. People are pretty good at estimating it. With marijuana, it's like, well, they're smoking flour, and they're eating edibles, and they're vaping, and how much are they even getting? So that's, it's very hard to get a handle on it, and we're trying to figure out ways of actually measuring your, um, it's called THC coup, which is a measure of like how much exposure you've had to marijuana over the last couple of weeks, and other metabolites so that we can model it so we can get a sense of somehow figuring out just how much THC people are getting in their system because it's it's a much more complex uh, compound because it's what's called lipophilic 
it seeps into your fatty tissues, which includes your brain, and then it seeps out. And it seeps out over weeks. So if you're a chronic user and you stop using, it'll still be showing up in your system a couple of weeks later. So it makes it very hard to figure out how much THC, you know, are people actually getting exposed to. So that's, I mean, we're trying to figure out something like that. And there's, I know that there's implications. There's always talk about um, kind of like uh, uh, driving under the influence. Yeah, yeah, that's a hot topic. How to, how to stratify that. I, yeah, that's um, a huge topic, and it's there, people are going nuts trying to figure it out. The main issue is that tolerant users um, show much less impairment than people who are naive users, and um, that makes coming up with a level uh, much harder. Now, the truth is, if you drink a lot, you get you get adapted to it too, and they have cutoffs for drinking. But alcohol has first-order kinetics, so you kind of can know from their blood alcohol level when they had their last drink, you can come up with a kind of clear cutoff. It's been a lot harder to come up with that for marijuana, it's pretty clear that you are somewhat impaired in terms of your driving performance with marijuana. But again, chronic users appear to be less impaired. And like people are fighting tooth and nail to try to, like, I don't know, they're coming up with trying to come up with different measures and they have different studies. Some people have people drive on in lab simulators, others have them drive on the, in actual cars. And depending on how you measure what, you see different types of impairment. And it's driving the lawyers nuts because no one can agree on what is a standard for impaired driving. <laughs> and they, say, they certainly, they, what they want is a level, but it's not clear that they're ever going to get that. They may just be having to do tests of performance. So, so if you 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 threw out the term first order kinetics. Yeah. So if we if you have I don't know if you have three beers. If you have three beers. You're going to metabolize one beer an hour. Okay, and pretty much everybody will. Maybe pretty much everyone little, will. It's pretty consistent. Pretty consistent, but with marijuana, you know, it seeps into your fat, and then it seeps out, and it can take days or weeks. If you're a chronic user, it's basically constantly in your system. So it's very hard to estimate how much you've had lately from a particular level. And I know that this is also a, a topic on a national scale in terms of workplace and clean drug screens. Absolutely. People being able to submit a drug screen. Sure. And um, how long before their drug screen will turn clean. That's right. And uh, anyone where... Part of their employment, they have to operate machinery, and there's concerns about impairment. Uh, this is, you know, it's a, it's a big problem, particularly if people are taking it and saying that they're taking it for medicinal reasons or a legitimate reason. Uh, you know, it's it's an unsettled area of science, and it's certainly an unsettled area of law, to my knowledge. Okay, but it affects. It's a it's a public health and public safety concerns so hence it makes sense that it's in the news sure okay very fascinating what in your experience researching this and looking at 
from a, a, a psychiatrist's point of view, mm-hmm. what do we know so far that uh, of regular cannabis use, and what do you think we're going to see in the future? For, well, I guess the effect. Well, unlike other substances of abuse, there's a very complicated issue where we have, there may be benefits, medicinal benefits of marijuana. In fact, it's basically clear that there are, at least for um, pain management and um, like cancer-related pain. I mean, it's clearly got some potential medicinal effects. Uh, it's clearly got harms. Um, I think compared to alcohol and tobacco, we have a hundred times as many studies on alcohol and tobacco. We do not have good longitudinal long-term outcome data on marijuana. And by that, I mean that a lot of the negative effects of tobacco are not present until you've smoked for a couple decades. And a lot of the negative effects of heavy drinking are not apparent until you've uh, used alcohol for a couple decades. And um, we just don't have those kind of data sets for, um, for marijuana. And it's sort of unknown what the effect of all this chronic exposure is going to be. And it's unknown because the levels that people are using are, in some cases, clearly much higher than they did were in the past. The areas, like, there's pretty good evidence that adolescent marijuana use raises your risk of developing a major mental illness. And uh, this has been hard to sort out because marijuana use is common and psychotic illnesses are rare, and psychotic illnesses develop when you're a teenager and a young adult, and when you use marijuana, when you're a teenager and a young adult, and you can't randomize people to it. But I've tried to figure it out, and I would estimate, based on what I've read, that about one in a thousand marijuana users is going to develop a major mental illness, like a psychotic illness, who otherwise wouldn't have. So it's not... It's not common. It's like maybe one in a thousand. Okay. And there's, you know, there's confidence intervals around that estimate. It could be lower. It could be higher. But there is likely to be some increased risk of people developing essentially a psychotic. An illness? You mean uh, like a schizophrenia? Schizophrenia or, or maybe... severe bipolar? Yeah. Okay. That seems pretty. Pretty much, this has been reviewed up the wazoo and I mean people have done every kind of control they can think of to adjust for it the real issue is you cannot randomize people to marijuana so you will never know for sure um, about these harms in the sense that if you think something is good for people you can randomize them to it usually it's not as good as you think it is Um, (laughs) if if you think it's harmful, though, you can't randomize them to it. So you're, so the strength of the evidence is kind of more associational, and you're kind of saying, well, maybe it's something else. Or So it has to be more I don't know, naturalistic? Like it has it, to be naturalistic, because, I mean, the test would be to randomize kids to smoke pot. Okay. And uh, that no one's going to do that, and it would be unethical. But that's the only way you would know for sure 
what the risk was. But uh, if you look at kids who smoke pot, and even if you control for pre-existing psychotic symptoms and do other kind of controls, you still see this elevated incidence of developing uh, psychotic illnesses. And it seems pretty specific to pot. You don't see it with other substances uh, to the same degree. So I think that's pretty firm. Um, now, does this get uh, more murky where the, the possibility of people who have predispositions for mental illness... Yeah, they have uh, tried to control for that. They have tried to measure that. They've done every everything you can do within an observational design has been done to try to account for that issue you raised, which is caused... Technically, that's labeled reverse causation. Reverse is, causation, okay. That, that's not, that path is not from marijuana to the mental illness. It's really that people are having some mental symptoms and then they're maybe using marijuana to try to manage them. They've tried to control for reverse causation. And within the limits of what you can do in a, with naturalistic studies, it keeps popping up that marijuana does raise this risk of mental illness. Most of the risk does appear to be pre-18. So most of the risk appears to be in marijuana use before adulthood. The developing brain. Yeah, whatever you want to call so, it. Okay. But um, but if you had different than if you had a thirty-year-old who wanted to yeah, pick up yeah yeah I mean they haven't really or... looked at it but it it doesn't I would as a general rule if you have not developed a major mental illness by twenty-five you're not going to develop one. Um, okay. I mean, as far as that goes, if you haven't developed an addictive disorder by age 25, the odds of developing one are pretty low. By the time you're 25, you're pretty much through the age of risk for, not completely, but through a lot, for a lot of the risk for mental illnesses and um, addictive disorders. Experience the compassionate care of CEDAR, the Center for Dependency, Addiction, and Rehabilitation. Located at the University of Colorado Hospital, we manage complex health needs in addition to addiction. To learn more, visit cedarcolorado.org. Are you aware of anything involving, I know there was some New Zealand data that looked at intelligence? Yeah, yeah, yeah. IQ. yeah, yeah I'm well familiar with that. What, what are your thoughts on that? So basically, marijuana users tend to have um, lower IQ. When you control, though, for family effects, basically the twin studies have shown that it's not the marijuana per se. It's some. It's the mar the marijuana use is more of a marker of other behavioral factors. It's, it's probably just not going to school that much. Oh, just, it's probably just if you're not, if you're smoking pot and ditching school, you're not getting as much educational exposure. And that'll affect your, uh, you know, IQ levels also. So the the twin studies have shown that within twin pairs, when one used marijuana and the other one did not, you did not see the drop in IQ. So it's probably that the marijuana uses a marker of a whole bunch of factors. It's not the direct effect of marijuana itself. Having said that, chronic marijuana use and heavy marijuana use can certainly knock off a lot of cognitive 
uh, ish, you know, like you're, you're not going to function as well cognitively. But this was really saying that the effect was permanent. And that, I, I don't know, that's not, that's certainly not clear. That was the New Zealand data. And that was the New Zealand data, and then a bunch of twin studies looked at it, and they always found that it was, the effect was there, but when you accounted for what was called the family-wide effect, it went away. And uh, it seems that it's more that if you're smoking pot, you're doing other things that probably aren't that good for your IQ, the main one probably being is not attending school or not paying attention. Sure. <laughs> Okay. No, very interesting. What? Uh, how? And then, so we we covered a little bit about the most risk factors for the most severe illnesses, uh, schizophrenia, bipolar. Mm. A little bit on um, looking at it maybe from an IQ perspective. And um, what what are some of your thoughts about some of the most common things we see here at Cedar? We see a lot of people who have significant depression, um, anxiety yeah, I mean, conditions. I mean, here we see people just having more marijuana use disorder and that they're using constantly marijuana they can't stop it's affecting their work and life functioning and then i do think if you get in the habit of using marijuana and then you stop people it will experience sort of anxiety and depression kind of um i don't know i mean often have a period where they feel worse for a while coming off of it. I mean, it is an addictive substance, and when you don't have it, your brain's basically going to be missing its higher level of cannabinoids. So, you know, I think your brain is chock full of cannabinoids. You produce them naturally. When you replace them with these plant cannabinoids at much higher levels, you're clearly knocking your own receptors down and your own ability to produce cannabinoids are probably reduced. And then when you're missing those cannabinoids, your brain's going to complain. Sure. And it might complain by feeling anxious or depressed. And, I mean, that's sort of the definition of an addictive substance. So, the yeah, the body adapts. The brain adapts and, and the body adapts and then it... There's symptoms upon withdrawal, and I mean, cannabis is a psycho, it's a pharmacologically psychoactive substance, and I, and I, I, you know, I believe that when people first use it, they and often may continue using it. It's got a self-reinforcing effect that it must produce positive effects for people to keep using it. Sure. Now I know. Um... I know you've spoken on an international level, mm-hmm. and um, do you any anything you found? Like, what are other countries doing around the world regarding cannabis? Is this is this changing on an international level? It's definitely. I think worldwide, there's a movement to either decriminalize or legalize marijuana. I think the U.S. being what it is, you know, the U.S. is more like a Wild West capitalism. I don't think any other countries have had the kind of free market capitalism uh, connected with legalization that we've had here in Colorado. I mean, Holland decriminalized it, but they kept it tightly regulated. Now, Canada is going to legalize it. I'll be curious how they end up doing it. 
I predict, being the Canadians, they'll still somewhat regulate it more tightly. But, you know, this kind of um, free market capitalism combined with legalization has been pretty unique to the United States and the kind of um, advertising that's allowed. And, I mean, the of course, the price per pound has been dropping like a rock. So, um, you know, the United States has been unique in its um, kind of free market capitalism <laughs> approach to legalization. Sure. And then, and I know that, and then all this interweaves with these uh, dispensaries and grow operations. They're making, they're all making their own product. They're all making their own and, product. And there's a whole industry now, like, I've spoken to some of them. They're trying to develop new products, faster on, faster offset, trying to make it more water-soluble, trying to infuse it into products. I was talking to someone about they're trying to make cannabis-infused beer. So, like, like, so I mean, oh America God. being what it is, <laughs> there's, uh, you know, oh, man. there's a lot of yeah. money flowing into, uh, you know, to making more, you know, more products that are appealing to more people. I mean, it's not that different from the alcohol industry or the tobacco industry or, or the sugar industry. I mean, it's, uh what you would expect in a capitalist economy with a, a reinforcing substance. And I know, I mean, I, I, this is always an interesting struggle. I think there's, there's a lot that's wrapped up in this, especially in our state, because the, I know the vast majority of cannabis users are recreational users who do not have problems. Sometimes we get a little bit of a different glimpse of this on the inside uh, in treatment. I know we've looked at this and our very heavy cannabis users who come to Cedar are really not well on numerous battlefronts. Right, right. And and they also, I, I don't know if I have this right, but I feel like they, they scored an average like two and a half or three addictions. Like it wasn't just cannabis well, addiction. I've had some who are pure cannabis. But I mean, look, I mean, it's not that different from alcohol. Many people drink alcohol recreationally. Then a fair number of people probably drink alcohol excessively. But, you know, probably by the time you come into treatment, you're probably drinking alcohol at an alcoholic level. And I mean, I think there's a difference between smoking marijuana occasionally, smoking it daily, and the smoking it five times a day, and essentially, you know, smoking it very heavily. So it's really a matter of kind of degree and then associated impairment. Yeah, and I agree. If you show up in a treatment, you probably have other issues that are making it even more complicated or difficult. Is there any push or work towards some sort of national guidelines? Like, what is safe cannabis use? Well, what no, are safe I mean that, well, that is actually my big pitch, that if we're going to legalize it, we need to have the same public health, medical, and scientific infrastructure in place so we can have guidance for safe levels. If there are such things, we can have guidance about medicinal uses that's scientifically based and that kind of propaganda-based, 
and that we can have kind of a public health health message that's straightforward. I mean, look, basically, people know that they shouldn't smoke. The science says it's bad. Or tobacco. Tobacco. And the scientific community says tobacco smoking is bad. The public generally accepts it. They still smoke sometimes, but they kind of know they shouldn't. The tobacco industry, the tobacco control people have been somewhat flummoxed by this e-cigarettes because they're a little bit safer than regular tobacco products, but they might lead you to be a smoker. But that's kind of clear cut. Alcohol is a little more complicated because maybe a little bit of alcohol might be good for you, but we know that a lot of alcohol is really bad for you. Right, and that's also that's in the news today. Right. For alcohol, there's doctor's guidance about you shouldn't drink more than this amount. And there's some kind of public health campaign to have responsible drinking and kind of limit the harms of excessive drinking or alcoholism. Now, marijuana could be an even more complicated, and probably is a super complicated story because the medicinal benefits, the unclear harms, the different products, the different dosings, and the lack of data, particularly around the long-term effects. So it's, it's a real complicated field, and it's, there has not been a systematic effort to try to establish like basic safety parameters. And it's partly caught up in this whole um, political battle about whether it should be legal or not. Because the the anti-legal people kind of don't want to support some of the certain types of research because they figure it'll promote the, the it. And then, and, yeah, and then the pro-marijuana people, they have been totally resistant to acknowledging that there's any harms associated with, with marijuana. And they're just sort of like... They don't want to accept that you know it can be addictive or it can cause problems... They've really been, it's all caught up in this kind of political uh, conflict over how it should be regulated. Well, that's very fascinating. Um, Dr. Hopfer, this has, been a, this has been a good talk, and this has brought up some new ideas for me as well. I'm just on the complexities of cannabis, and there's a lot of different layers to it that we were not aware of in the past. A, a lot of different targets for research, and then how it interplays with public safety guidelines, all this. I mean, because you have so you have a compound that offers something and has some health-based components, and also at the same time has some harm-based components, and how to tease all that out so that users can make educated choices. Yeah, I think you got it. Well, do, um, do you have any, any final thoughts? Any other? Stick to the cannabinoids you've got. <laughs> your, your natural natural cannabinoids? My natural mammalian cannabinoids. <laughs> this, is a, this is a huge industry. There's a lot of money on the line. I mean, there's, I, I think there's definitely certain people that benefit from this and the whole spectrum of how they benefit, but very complicated. This is a, this is a huge topic, and I think the... Maybe we had spoken a long time ago, and you had, I think, introduced the idea of maybe we need to take some of the former marijuana research and kind of throw it in the trash, just because 
Every, the game well, has changed. Yeah, so I mean, much. I, well, that's um, I, I I think what I mean by that is a lot of the older studies were with levels that were so much lower. So, for example, like the five percent studies. So, it, pretty much twenty years ago, they showed that the rate of addiction to marijuana was about the same as you got with alcohol. Well, I have no idea if that's true anymore or not because the compound is so different. It may be true, but um, I think a lot of the research from when it was um, illegal and a different product, I don't know how applicable that is to uh, the current day. Could Things could be better, things could be worse, but I just feel like we don't know a lot. Sure. Oh, yeah, a little bit of like what would alcoholism look like if we only had 3-2 beer That's right. compared to only high IPA, 10, yeah. 10%. That's right. I mean, it would... There you go. Well, okay. Very good. Thank you much. Um, Thank you. This is uh, uh, Dr. Pat Failing, Dr. Christian Hopfer sitting down on Through the Trees, our uh, Cedar Addiction Treatment Podcast, talking about cannabis. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to Through the Trees, the Cedar Addiction Treatment Podcast. Please visit cedarcolorado.org for a wide array of educational content about the disease of addiction and the science of recovery. If you or a loved one are considering Cedar and the University of Colorado Hospital for treatment, please speak with our admissions team at 720-848-3000. Cedar the Center for Dependency, Addiction, and Rehabilitation, helping people build a life of recovery.